Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have part one of Homicide Shaft by Robert Leslie Bellum. Bellum was best known for his creation of Dan Turner, Hollywood detective, whose exploits explored the seamy underbelly of Tinseltown. Bellum's stories were known for their over-the-top dialogue and supercharged, hard-boiled style that bordered on parody. Whether it was intentional or not is up to the reader to decide, but certainly gave Bellum's writing its own flavor. Bellum is said to have written 3,000 short stories during his 30-year career. Most of those appeared in the cultural publications line of spicy books, such as Spicy Detective and Spicy Mystery. But he also wrote for several other magazines. Among Bellum's other creations were P.I. Nick Ransom, who appeared in about a dozen stories, including this piece from the April 1949 issue of Thrilling Detective. This story is also included in our recent release from Brick Pickle Media, Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales Volume 2, now available in print and ebook format. It features some of the best pulp stories from the pages of Thrilling Detective. It, along with Volume 1, can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore. You can get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website, and that link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. Homicide Shaft by Robert Leslie Bellum Nick Ransom, investigator extraordinary, faces an odd bow and arrow murder case. Chapter 1, Near Miss As a murder weapon, a bow and arrow can be just as lethal as a gun. The main difference is largely a matter of muscle. doesn't take much strength to squeeze a Roscoe's trigger, but you need an extra backlog of brawn to bend a seasoned orange hunting bow with 75-pound pull. Which was okay with me. I had the brawn, the bow, and a 30-inch broadhead arrow, and I was aiming this deadly steel-tipped shaft in an extremely gorgeous Irish doll named Molly Shannon. Please! She whimpered in frantic desperation as I hauled back the tough linen bowstring. Spare my life, I beg of you. Then I should be your handmaiden, your slave forever. As a sample of allegedly dramatic dialogue, this line was pretty banal, if not downright corny. But that was how the script was written, and the Shannon Wren gave it all she had. She had plenty, too, not only in voice and acting ability, but in looks as well. Her red tresses hung down her back and over her shoulders like a wavy firefall. Her features were just irregular enough to be demurely alluring. Her eyes were as blue as Kalami Lakes are supposed to be. And she had a slight smattering of golden freckles and a complexion of otherwise creamily flawless. Moreover, her figure was like an excerpt from a bachelor's dream. Dainty and slender where slenderness counted, but unexpectedly lush when it came to curves. All you needed was one slant at her contours to make you start drooling like a wolf with a lamb chop. I notched my arrow, inched it back where I got ready to twang it at my target. Once again, Molly made it the woeful whimpers and begged me not to render her deceased. I'm too young, too fair, too desirable to die, she pleaded. Let me live and your reward shall be my warm lips, my love, my endearing fealty to your banner. Of all the nauseating sheep dip ever scribbled by a Benzedrine happy scenario writer, that copped the fur trim trophy. No matter how many times I'd heard it in rehearsal, it still gave me an irritable yen to hunt up the author and dish him a load of lumps by way of criticism. If stuff smelled, every time the Shannon Muffin delivered it, the odor got worse. And for garbage like that, Paragon Studios cost a perfectly good Gitas, probably in the neighborhood of two grand a week. Which is no niggardly neighborhood even by Hollywood's opulent standards. I sharpened my aim, tightened the bowstring another couple pounds. 
25 feet from me, across the width of the Paragon soundstage, the red-haired Shannon, tomato coward, and cringe, registered abject terror. The set was dressed to represent a medieval nobleman's baronial banquet hall, complete with tapestry walls, tessellated floor, massive wooden furniture, and a cavernous fireplace big enough to birth a barbecued bear. And Molly stood in front of the fireplace beside a mammoth hardwood stairway leading up to a rampart balcony directly overhead, ready to freeze on cue when I shot my shaft at her trembling form. Standing beyond camera range, I sweated out the final few seconds of waiting. All around me, clig lights and reflectors and baby spots blazed on the scene. A microphone on a fishpole boom picked up Molly's words for the soundtrack, while three cameras rolled silently to blot up the action on celluloid negative. Then, as I listened for a final line of dialogue that would be my signal to let fly, a sudden ugly notion nibbled at my brisket. What if I missed? Or rather, what if I didn't miss? The thought gave me an abrupt attack of the phantoids because a slip was possible. After all, it had been many a year since I had undertaken a caper of this caliber. I was out of practice, rusted to thrill racket. In the old days, routine would have been duck soup for me, back when I was a cinema stunt expert with my own professional organization, Risks Incorporated. But that was long past. Now my business card says Nick Ransom, private investigations, and a licensed snoop should stick to his snooping, not go hoisting around the bow and arrow. All at once, my nerves got as taut as the bowstring. This, I reflected bitterly, was what I had got for listening to Molly Shannon's sweet talk. She had barged into my agency office on Hollywood Boulevard earlier in the day, slim and girlishly graceful in a sea-green confection of cotton print that fooled you with its artful simplicity. You noticed the swirly skirt and puffed soft bodice, and you promptly forgot them because of your preoccupation with the contours they contained. That kind of dress design is expensive, and worth every nickel of what it costs. Molly knew this. She had a flair for clothes, a subtle sense of understatement in everything she wore. She seemed to realize that men don't make mental passes at a frock. It's the wearer who gets the whistles. Hi, Nick, she greeted me, perching on the edge of my desk and swinging a tapered nylon smooth gam. How's the Sherlocking trade? Having known her since the days when she was climbing out of mob scenes and central casting bit rolls, I didn't mind letting my hair down. Right now, hun, the hawkshaw business is a schnook. I don't know where my next murder's coming from, to say nothing of my next fee. Ever think about going back to stunting? She tossed it off casually, a throwaway question that fished for information without actually seeming to. Stunting, I said. Me? Perish forbid. Better I should be sweeping the streets, no less. When a guy reaches my age, his bones get brittle and he learns to cherish them very tenderly indeed. She grinned, glommed them like Gaspers, leaned down so I could light it for her. Pooh, you're in the prime of life and you know it. Rather handsome, too, in a dissipated sort of way. Thanks. Now you've buttered me with Blarney. Suppose you come to the punchline. Punchline? The payoff, the gimmick. You want something, no? Well, all right, I want something, yes. Name it, sugar. Favorites for friends wrapped up to take out a short order. Day and night service, redheads are specialty. Whatever I have you want, you've got it. I opened a drawer, dredged up my office, fifth of vat 69, two glasses, and poured a pair of snorts. I'm all yours. Ransom the Rover Boy, Nick the Knight Errant. Suddenly then, she had grown serious over a drink. You're right, Philo, this is a professional call, with a retainer attached. You set the price, I pay it. She sipped. Nice scotch, this. Yeah, what shenanigan have you been up to that you created the service of a private dick? No shenanigan at all. I mean, I don't need a private dick. It has nothing to do with detecting. It's a sequence. You make everything so lucid, so beautifully clear, like a jug full of mud. Go on, be funny. You're not the one who's got to get shot at. Huh? She frowned, fidgeted. Late this afternoon is to be, at Paragon Soundstage, 6, the Castle Banquet Hall set. Our new medieval opus, costume stuff, produced, directed, and midwife by Benny Thornton. Skirt by some schmo should have been exterminated in his cradle. My biggest starring role to date. Rattle on, I said patiently. Sooner or later, you'll probably say something valid. I can wait. I'm an archery target in the final reel. We're shooting the final reel first. That's Hollywood for you. 
Isn't it just? The arrow is supposed to miss me by less than an inch. A genuine arrow, not a prop. The villain does it after I beg for my life. He misses and the hero abolishes him. It sounds thrilling. She made a wry mouth. Spectacular. Of course, a stunt specialist will double for the heavy with the bow and arrow routine. Natch. The trouble is, I don't trust the average movie stunt expert. Not when it's my life they're risking. But I do trust you, Nick. Meaning you want me to make the archery, eh? Will you? For me? Pretty, please? Bemused, bedazzled, and bereft of my common sense, I'd answer without reflection. All right, kitten. If it's okay by the producer, it's Jake with me. Later, I'd wafted myself to the Paragon lot, cleared the deal with Benny Thornton, boss of the unit. Now I stood waiting for my cue to sling a murderous shaft at the Shannon Cupcake, and my nerves were getting slightly frayed around the fringes. I didn't like this at all. It made me uncertain of myself, unsure of my ability to pull the truck without accident. For the last time, Molly spouted a line of corn. Spare me, Sir Harold. My kisses shall be your reward. That was it. I flexed my bowl to limits of the pliancy and let drive. And at the same instant, a silk crashed down at me. In the manufacturing movies, the silk is a large metal frame on the order of a window screen. Only instead of wire mesh, it is covered with bluish-white silk, stretched taut and held in place by clamps on all four sides. When placed in front of a floodlight, it diffuses a concentrated brilliance, softens up the harshness of raw, bright illumination. High above the banquet hall, there was a catwalk on a wooden scaffolding, a platform on which several floods and baby spots were arranged in a ragged row, turned downward to bathe the scene in light. It was from this lofty catwalk that the heavy steel frame silk came crashing float my unprotected noggin. Somebody bellowed, Ransom, look out! Just as I fired my arrow, and the Molly Shannon gave vent to a hideous scream. Chapter 2 Gaffer's Getaway at the last split instant, I jumped like a frog with a hot foot and hurled myself sidewise. The silk and steel diffusion gadget landed with a thunderous kerblam less than six inches from where I'd been standing and smashed itself cockeyed on the soundstage flooring. Splinters flew like a shower of toothpicks, and over the noise of the impact, I heard the Shannon quail screech again. Her yeep was a high banshee elation that ended in a stricken gurgle of pure agony, then it was cut off as if chopped by an axe. All the ketchup abruptly curdled in my veins, and I had a dopey impulse to close my glimmer, shut out the sight of something I was scared to see. Resisting this, I forced myself to copagander at the Sh Shannon squad. I groaned, and I hurtled toward her with all the velocity my 190 pounds of heft could muster. It wasn't going to be pleasant fumbling around with the corpse, particularly when I was the guy who'd caused it to come defunct. But everybody else in the set seemed frozen, rooted in his tracks. The camera crew stood petrified. The sound engineer looked like a horrified statue. The grips and juicers and prop men were stricken in motionless attitudes. And even... Benny Thornton, producer-director of the Opus, resembled a tall and slab-sided monolith carved from pallid marble. At the moment, I was evidently the only bozo in the unit with motive power, so I used it. Over by the massive staircase, Molly Shannon sagged against the fireplace as limp as wet spaghetti. Her freckles stood out like scattered gold coins on the whiteness of her face. Her body slumped loosely in its wool and velvet Renaissance costume, and her knees had buckled under her, deprived her of support. Yet she remained awkwardly upright, and when I rushed closer, I saw that it was my arrow holding her there. The shaft had buried a steel tip six inches deep in the woodwork, and at first glance, I figured it had gone all the way through her head, pinned her to the fireplace. Then I discovered I was wrong, and I heaved a sigh of relief all the way from my toenails. Instead of impaling the quail, the arrow had merely grazed the side of her scalp and connected a thick strand of her flame-red hair in passing. It then buried itself in the hardwood along with that swath of her tresses. This was what kept her from crumpling to the floor. She was literally hanging by her hair. Otherwise, she was unharmed and alive. I made sure of that by feeling for her heartbeat, finding a steady pulsation there. Shock had made her swoon, but aside from that, she wasn't even scratched. I slid an arm around her waist, braced her to take the strain off her hairdo. Then I lifted my voice and yodeled, Fetch me a knife, somebody, and for Pete's sake, make it snappy. My yeep broke the spell that seemed to settle on everyone in the troop. 
Eleven teen assorted citizens snapped out of their collective trance, started running around in chaotic circles like chickens in a Kansas cyclone. Worst of the whole blundering bunch was Benny Thornton. Forgetful of his dignified position as a picture's big shot executive, he unwound himself and charged me with both fists flailing an expression of hysterical indignation in his glimmers. A knife the bum wants. He's not satisfied to murder my top star with an arrow. Now he wants to ba- hack her to pieces with a knife. Then he swung a sizzling haymaker at my unguarded jaws. My hands were busy supporting the Shannon Colleen, so I did the next best thing. I lashed out with an upraised brogan and booted Thornton in the short ribs. By and large, it wasn't much of a kick, because I was off balance and out of position. Even so, Thornton uncorked a howl of pain and a surprise. Skittered slideways across the set and brought up with a resounding wallop against the camera dolly. The collision dumped him on the cheeks of his breeches, and he floundered there briefly, his sandy hair coming uncombed his long-nosed narrow map registering bewilderment. You! You! Why, you dirty? Belay the sputtering and bring me a blade, I said. I can't stand here holding this chick all evening. Even as I voiced the remark, Molly stirred in my clutch, opened her peepers. Oh, my head, my scalp, my hair. Oh. Take it easy, sweets. I'll cut you loose in a minute. You'll be minus the lock of your crowning glory, but I knew a windblown bob should look good. Whereupon I lamped Thornton barging at me again, and I got ready to fend him off if he tried any more warfare. He didn't. My kick had drained all the truculence out of his skinny system beside. It was obvious that he now realized he had made a fool of himself. He peered at Molly, discovered she was okay, and dished me a sheepish grin of apology. Ah, oh, sorry, Ransom. I must have been out of my mind to suspect you of, uh, well... Here, pal, here's my knife. Hurry up and whittle that confounded arrow. Whittle it yourself, I said. I got other fish to fry. By this time, the Shannon tomato was standing firmly on her stems and needed no further bolstering. But meanwhile, I'd glanced upward at the overhead catwalk and I had pipe movement there. The movement triggered me into rapid action. Eventually, I strode over to where the heavy steel frame still could fall in. Noted the dent it had made in the floor. Nothing but luck had kept that dent from being in my skull instead of marring the stage, in which case I would have been ready for installation of mahogany overcoat. A scant few inches had separated me from a reunion of my ancestors. And I don't like to be shaved that close. Of course a private eye grows accustomed to attempted assault and bashery. When you're in the snooping game, you're bound to accumulate enemies who thirst for your gore. As a rule, I'm on guard against ambushes, but this time my mind had been on other matters. I had left myself wide open for mayhem. And now that I spotted the party who had tried to crunch my conch from above, I determined to do something about it. The guy was leaning over the catwalk's brink, a wispy, overall-clad lugan with a coil of electric cable in his mitt, which proclaimed to be a gaffer, the electrician in charge of the scaffolding's floodlights. Since there was nobody else up there on the platform with him, I decided he was the guilty jeepo, whereupon I swarmed toward his airy trestle like a monkey climbing after bananas. Gaining the narrow platform, I stalked him with my knuckles all set to dole out disaster. You careless creep! What was the big idea dropping that gadget overboard? I never done anything of the sort, he said in a high, defensive whinny from somewhere in the region of his adenoids. I don't even know how to come to fall. I wasn't nowhere near it. You lie like a taxi meter. The only character up here and the thing couldn't tumble by itself. Had to be nudged. You're either trying to brain me or spoil my aims. The arrow will give Miss Shannon a hole in the head. That ain't so. You lay off me. Not until I run you through the ringer and make you whistle the truth, I said, closing in on him. He pivoted clumsily, broke into a panicky gallop toward a ladder at the far end of the catwalk. As he turned, he yanked the electric cable coil in his fist, a line which ran to an outlet box across the trestle. Maybe it was accidental, maybe not, but in tugging at the insulated cord, he snapped it up in front of my feet just as I lunged to grab him. I tripped and sailed headlong, landed sprawling and skidded over the edge of the catwalk like a glider being launched from a catapult. For a dizzy instant, I plummeted through space, falling free and knowing I'd be crushed to cranberry jelly when I smacked the floor of the stage far below. 
Then, twisting in midair, I reached out widely and glued the grasp on a small square platform that happened luckily to be located about seven feet beneath the higher walkway. Seizing its projecting lip with both hands, I broke my fall, swung pendulum fashion with my full weight dangling from my fingertips. Something touched my soles. I stared downward, lamped a couple of carpenters jabbing a ladder at me. A moment later, they braced it in position. I rested my hoofs on its topmost rung and slowly regained my balance. Then I descended an almighty yank, reached a stage level, and panned my enraged peepers around the set. Where's that gaffer? Molly Shannon drifted over to me, still shaky from a recent brush with death, but at least capable of moving around her own steam. There was a jagged gash in her hair where a hank of red, of red had been chopped out to free her from the arrow I'd shot into that property new little post, but most of the color had returned to her complexion, and her forefinger scarcely trembled as she pointed to a stack of wild walls and flats beyond the stage. He went that way, she answered my question about the lambing electrician, and Benny Thornton went after him. Breathing fire and brimstone, I pelted in pell-mell pursuit. A bit player got on my way, and I stiff-armed him, vaulted over his somersaulting poundage, blammed off the banquet hall set, and passed the stack flats. Now I was in a sort of narrow passageway, flanked on either side by high-piled props and painted scenery. The only light came from a raw, dim, incandescent, far up on the vaulted ceiling gigantic soundstage building. Shadow slanted downward across the passage, making my path precarious, and then suddenly I stumbled into something soft, yielding. It was the pick's producer-director, Thornton. He moaned under the impact of my toe, stirred, and tried to sit up on his haunches. Ransom. I hunkered down. What is it? What the devil happened to you? I don't know. I was chasing. Greninger. Greninger being the electrician? Yes. Did he slug you? I can't remember. Maybe, maybe so, or maybe I fell, hit my head on something. He groaned again, rubbed his forehead, where there was a nasty blue swelling the size of third base. All I know is he, he got away. By jupe, he'll never work on this lot again. Carelessness is bad enough letting that silk fall off the catwalk, but tripping with a cable and then waylaying me, I'll blacklist him off every payroll in the entire industry. Maybe he won't have to, I said grimly. He'll have a double of the time finding jobs when he's reposing in a cell. What? I'm going to have him pinched. In my book, that falling silk was no careless accident. If I ever lay my hands on him, he'll wind up behind bars. After a considerable stopover, an emergency ward for repairs. Pretty vindictive, aren't you, gumshoe? Not that I blame you, considering. Vindictive my nostrils. The way I look at this afternoon's clam bank, Grenzer made a felonious and deliberate attempt at premeditated murder. Chapter 3. Death Arrow. Molly Shannon's dressing bungalow was twice the size of a millionaire's trailer and three times as lavish. Located on the back lot behind the Paragon sound stages and scene docks, it dwarfed a dozen other cottages in a double row as equipped with typical Hollywood conveniences. Shower, living room, makeup quarters, even a fully outfitted miniature kitchenette, in case the Shannon doll preferred not to take nourishment in the studio's commissary with less important stars. Moreover, the kitchenette stock of refreshments included a copious repertoire of bottled goods, a fact I discovered while prowling the premises and waiting for Molly to divest herself of grease paint. She was taking her time with the job, probably because she didn't know I had barged in the joint without knocking. I wanted it that way. I wanted to surprise her, catch her off guard, then maybe I could startle some information out of her before she had a chance to think of a lot of evasions. After the dizzy events of the banquet hall set, Benny Thorne had postponed her retake of the arrow scene until tomorrow. He dismissed the troop, cleared the stage, and called it a day. Now my strap watch showed six o'clock, even up, as I sat in the front room of Molly's private shanty with a beaker of scotch in my fist and a cargo of questions on my mind. Off in the distance, carpenters were hammering hollowly at a hunk of spurious outdoor scenery. Inside the bungalow, there was a steady hissing splash of water gushing from the bathroom shower. 
Presently, the shower was cut off, and a moment later, the Shannon cutie hove into view, dainty as a red-haired naiad. I cocked an appreciative eye at the emerald silk kimono that fl- flowed over a figure like poured oil, then lifted my glass and salute to beauty. Hi, hon, you've got company. Nick! What are you doing here? Making like a detective. After I phoned the cops and preferred charging to that missing Grenzer or Gonzo, I decided to drop in on you, ask you some questions. Questions like what? Like who's your worst enemy in the galloping snapshots? Enemy? Yeah, and quit parodying everything I say. Who disliked you, up to and including homicidal hatred? Why, why nobody, I... Don't slip me any hogwash, sugar. You had fear in your heart when you came to me today, asked me to stunt double in the bow and arrow routine. You claimed you didn't trust an ordinary stunt expert. Why? She peered at me through fringing lashes. Uh, just a precaution, she said unconvincingly. Precaution against what? Against accidents, like the one that happened. You know that was no accident, kitten. Let's stop shadowboxing, hmm? I crave to know why Grinzer dropped that gadget off the catwalk. What's your opinion? I... I have no opinion. Unless he was trying to maim you, or... or No dice there. Or rather, no motive. I never saw him before in my life. Therefore, he had no conceivable reason for wanting to distinguish me. On the other hand, though, suppose the guy was trying to joggle my aim just so you get croaked. That's fantastic. Grinzer wouldn't be fool enough to kill the goose that lays the golden... That is, I, I mean... Her voice dwindled away as she realized she had let something slip and regretted it. I finished my drink, lowered my bulk into an easy chair. You were about to say? Nothing. Nothing at all. Skip it. Look, pet, I hate to be persistent, but this is hardly time to clam up on your old pal Ransom. I'm the guy you entrusted with your life, remember? She came over, perched on the chair's upholstered arm, patted my hand. Of course I remember, and I'm grateful to you, Nick. If anyone else of you had shot that arrow at me, I wouldn't be here now. I'd be in the morgue. Very likely, but what's with this goose and golden egg stuff you started to mention? Please, Sherlock, don't ask questions. How else can I get answers? Come on, unburden yourself. There's something between you and that gaffer, wasn't there? Uh, No. I slid an arm around her slim, supple waist. Was he shaking you down for dough? She gasped, reddened, tried to squirm away, but didn't get far because I tightened my hold on her. How did you know? She whispered. I mean, what makes you what makes you think? A moment ago, you rejected my theory and tried to get you bumped off. Started to say you wouldn't be foolish enough to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. Meaning yourself, of course. Okay. There's only one kind of a golden egg he could possibly squeeze out of you. Moolah. Cash. Carrying that a step further, why should a screen star of your magnitude pay to a mere gaffer? Why are you so reluctant to admit it, unless there's something smelly in the background? Mix those ingredients, stir thoroughly, and it comes out looking suspiciously extortion. Spelled blackmail. Unexpectedly, she wriggled off the chair, arm into my lap, cuddled against me. She was warm and fragrant and feminine, and her nearest sense tingles, skittering through my system like a jolt of voltage. I don't want to think about it, she murmured. Can't we forget unpleasant things like that? She nestled her cheek on mine. I realized she was trying to sidetrack me, and I said, Wait a minute, baby, let's not... Then her lips battened on mine and stopped me from completing the protest. The only thing that got completed was a kiss of sizzling proportions, and I suddenly discovered I liked it. After all, I'm as human as the next Joe, and this Shannon cupcake was a mighty appetizing portion of pastry and the gossamer icing of that green negligee. By and by, though, I snapped back to normal and resumed the quiz program. About Grenzer and his shakedown caper. Why not come clean with me, Pat? Because I, well, there are some things no girl likes to admit. Please, Nick, can't you let it go at that? But you've already admitted to playing blackmail. Or anyhow, you practically admitted it. 
You intimated Gringer wouldn't try to murder you because your death would put a stop to his extortion collections. What did he have on you? Enough to ruin my career, wreck my reputation. She stood up, twisted her mouth in a crooked grimace. I might as well tell you the rest of the juicy scandal now that I've gone this far. I spent a weekend in Las Vegas with somebody. A man? Don't say it like that, Nick. It wasn't just a man. It was a guy I was in love with. A guy I thought loved me. I was wrong as I discovered when it came time to use the marriage license. He backed out, eh? She left a thin, brittle laugh that sounded like pieces of glass breaking, small and sharp and mirthless. Yes, he backed out. Not that I'm whining. You don't get anywhere crying over spilled milk. It just so happened that I was unlucky two ways. First, by falling for a heel smooth line of talk, and second, Grenzer was in Vegas that weekend. I get it. He saw you with a guy or coming out of his room or something like that. She nodded. I've been eating hush money ever since. Who was the man in the case, kiddo? A writer. You wouldn't know him. He's new in Hollywood. Big time? He draws big time pay, but to me his stuff smells. Of course, I may be prejudiced. Again, she made up that brittle, breaking glass laugh. What's his moniker? Hal Brookman. He scripted this costume pic I'm doing. Oh, now I understand why he told me the opus was authored by some schmo who should have been exterminated in his cradle. No wonder you sounded bitter. Incidentally, could Grenzer be blackmailing this Brookman wolf on the same grounds he used for molting moolah out of you? I want to know why. What's that got to do with it? You never can tell. For the sake of argument, assume Brookman was also being shaken down. Assume further he craved to eliminate the blackmailing gaffer. So he writes a bow and arrow scene in a script. Then he sneaks on stage, unnoticed while the sequence is being shot. He jiggles the frame still, causes the thing to fall. But why? For what reason? Self-preservation. He risks braining me and getting you killed too. The idea being to pin the blame on Granger so he'll either be pinched or take it on the lam. Either way, Brookman is rid of him. How does it sound to you? She started to answer. Before she could get the words out of it, there came an insistent rapping on the dressing bungalow's front door. Frowning, she went to the portal, opened it. Hugh! The bozo who ankled over the threshold wasn't merely handsome. He was downright beautiful. He had wavy hair the color of buff platinum, skin as clear as the baby's caboose, and a profile of blonde on Greek coinage. Aquiline, regal, haughty. In altitude, he topped my own six feet plus by a good two or three inches, and he probably weighed all of 210 with no visible lard. His slacks were silver gray and strictly Bond Street. His hound tooth loafer jacket had cost at least a century. There was a starlit silk scarf around his neck in place of his necktie. For a moment, I thought I was seeing a fashion show. My dear Molly. My very dear, I just heard what happened over on the banquet hall set. Good heavens, I never would have written that error routine if I'd known it would expose you to jeopardy. Really, I'm desolated. Aha, I thought, so this is Hal Brookman. This is the lad that took Molly to Las Vegas and gave her the brush off. Even if I hadn't known about that episode, I still wouldn't have liked him. You may have been attracted to dames, there was something in his general appearance that made you want to take your Sunday poke at his supercilious mush. Moreover, he talked the way he wrote. Flowery, mid-Victorian verbiage full of fancy embroidery. He gave me a pain in my cornerstone. I bowled my way forward, shoved Molly aside, and stood facing the scenario scribbler. So you're desolated, I feared him with a sarcastic leer. You wouldn't have written the arrow scene had you known it would expose the Shannon chick to peril. That'd do to tell, Sonny. I beg pardon? One eyebrow fled upward like a bird's wing. Do I know you, my good man? Wait, now I've got it. You're the stunting fellow who almost killed Shannon. Stunting fellow, my elbow. I'm a private dick, name a ransom, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised you turn out to be guilty of... Nick. That was the red-haired cupcake thrusting her into the hassle. Please don't. Brookman looked at her archly. 
Let him have a say, my love. By all means, let him sound off. The chap seems to be laboring under the impression I had something to do with that accident on stage six. Which is preposterous, of course. But let him talk. Then I'll be most happy to tell him about my alibi. What alibi? At the time that silk fell from the catwalk, I happened to be in my office on writer's row. With my secretary, I might add. Alibis can be rigged, I said. Secretaries can be bribed. Dear me. He delicately patted a yawn. Pardon me, I'm just a bit bored, won't you, old man? I reached out, harvested a handful of a scarlet scarf. Yeah, maybe you'll pardon me if I waltz it back to the banquet hall set and paw through my briefcase for a roll of scotch tape. Get your hands off of me! Then, in puzzlement, scotch tape? Cliffs and preserve any latent fingerprints there may be on the light diffusion screen. I want you along so that later you can't claim I pulled any hocus pocus. And gosh, help you if I find your prints on the gadget. Then I spun him around, got him by the collar and the slack of his slacks, walked him Spanish out of the dressing bungalow. Dusk was thickening, and the Paragon lot was practically deserted as we crossed the soundstage six and barged into the set where my arrow had almost dispatched Molly Shannon to everlasting glory. Still keeping my clutches on the Brookman bozo, I headed for the spot where the steel frame silk had crashed from the catwalk down to the floor. I could see the deep marks of the impact, but the screen itself was gone. A sinking feeling hit me when I remembered how evidently, efficiently, a major studio like Paragon functions. Apparently, a salvage crew had already carted away the damaged equipment for repairs, which meant several guys had now handled it and smeared their dabs all over the metal frame. A fervent curse formed my kisser, and then it got stuck there, unuttered. All of a sudden, my throat went dry, tight, and I felt my glimmers bulging like squeezed grapes. And no wonder. Over the foot of the property staircase was a huddled figure sprawled face down and motionless in a pool of congealed gore. The guy was a wispy citizen in overalls, and when I glommed a fabregastic gander at him, I recognized him as Grenger, the blackmailing gaffer. I recognized something else, too. The arrow which rudely protruded from between his shoulder blades with its lethal steel-tipped shaft buried deep in its bellows. It was a 30-inch broadhead hunting shaft, obviously from the quiver I'd used in the archery sequence earlier that afternoon, an exact duplicate of the one I had twanged at the Shannon Cutie. But that arrow had fortunately missed its human target, whereas I needed no second squint at the prone electrician to realize he was deader than a bucket of chopped bait. And that is it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back with a new episode next week. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production.